This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osimo, the founder of Kingswood Security and an author on church safety, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner, I'll share my expertise, all be joined by one of my co-hosts, giving you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, join me as we dive into this week's episode and we learn how to plan, prepare, and protect. Today's podcast, we kick off a four-part conversation series with Dr. James Densley, who is the co-founder of The Violence Project, based here with me in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, The Violence Project is a non-profit focused on violence prevention, particularly around mass shootings. They have spent the last four years conducting research into the life histories of mass shooters in the United States, charting their history from 1966 to the current day. Now, their goal was to find commonalities that will allow us to disrupt mass shootings before they occur. Now, their data is believed to be one of the most comprehensive databases that exists in America of this nature, and their research is now featured in their award-winning book, The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. And if you Look close enough, you'll see my own teachings appear in their book on my conversational interviewing, a very proud moment for me. So over four episodes, we're going to dive into the four things that their research found that mass shooters generally have in common. But before we dive into the first episode, I want to tell you about the sponsor of this podcast series, Bullis Insurance. Now, Bullis Insurance are based here with me in Minnesota, but serve churches Nonprofits and companies across the US teaching them how to manage and mitigate risk. And I've known Mark Ballas, the owner, for coming up to a decade, and they are my personal insurers of my business. So if you're looking to make sure you have the right coverage or want to look at insurance in a new way, I'd love to encourage you to reach out to Mark and the team at Ballas Insurance, as I know we'd be more than happy to answer any questions and help you in your insurance journey. Now, in the show notes, you'll find a link to their website so you can reach out to them directly. But for now, let's dive into part one of my conversation with Dr. James Denzi from The Violence Project. Well, James, welcome to the podcast. Really excited for this conversation today. And your research has gone across the US and it's gone international. So I know the listeners are going to get so much from it. So thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Well, and we're going to talk about the four things that your research has found that all mass shooters have in common. But maybe let's tell the people a little bit about who you are. So you're like me, you're Brit in America, but chart, chart your history for us. That's right, Englishman in the US. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, so name is James Densley. I'm a professor of criminal justice at Metropolitan State University. I'm also the department chair there, uh, which is based in Minnesota. And I'm the co-founder and co-president of The Violence Project, which is a nonprofit organization that's focused on violence prevention, particularly in the realm of kind of mass shootings. So for the last four years, we've been engaged in a big research project uh, focused on the life histories of mass shooters in the United States. And we just published a book about this uh, called The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic, which looks at uh, you know, the commonalities that mass shooters have, but in a way to do so, so we can get closer to prevention. 
And that's really the the bottom line here is trying to prevent the next shooting before it occurs. Hello, James. You know, like me being a Brit, your education and your doctorate, if you like, was around gang research. So how did the pivot happen then into mass violence? Are you fascinated with sort of mass just, murder? Just like violent like, lives. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting. So in a previous life before I became a college professor, I was a school teacher. And it's funny how your life comes full circle sometimes because the first thing with, with the school teaching was I had students who were sort of fascinated with gangs on the periphery of gangs had older brothers, uh, siblings, in fact, even parents involved in gangs. And so my research agenda for about the first 10 years of my academic career was focused on gang violence. And I still do a lot of research in that area. But then what's interesting is when you look at gangs internationally, you start focusing on gun violence as a byproduct of that. And you dive a little bit deeper into gun violence and you realize there's not just one type of gun violence, there's multiple. So you have everyday shootings in neighborhoods, you've got suicides, accidental shootings, mass shootings. And so my research agenda just kind of like shifted a little bit to focus on this aspect of that particular violent crime. And uh, and so at the moment, I've got these kind of parallel things going on. One day I'm talking about gangs and the next minute I'm talking about mass shooters. And so how did you and Gillian get this idea then? So theviolenceproject.org, so you're a, you're a non-profit, how did it come about But you both decided to do research in the area of mass violence? So Gillian's a psychologist uh, by training, also a professor like myself. I'm a sociologist. And she and I were just engaged in a number of conversations about violent crime in general, really. And it was after a particularly horrific mass shooting uh, in the summer of 2017, where Gillian quite sort of honestly just sort of said, you know, we don't really understand this phenomenon very well. And I'm getting sort of sick and tired of switching on the news, hearing about a mass shooting. But not only that, then seeing all the kind of talking heads get wheeled out and, and come out and say, well, it's all to do with violent video games, or it's all to do with uh, mental health, or it's, it's the guns or whatever it is, but never really fully understanding the phenomenon. So we just decided, let's try and engage in a research project. We actually got some funding from the National Institute of Justice, which is the research arm of the Department of Justice here in the States. And that accelerated the research where we were able to build this database of mass shooters, but actually spend our time interviewing some uh, and interviewing friends and family members, uh, and then also survivors of mass shootings, first responders, and so on. And so the project grew from there, and it grew to such an extent that it started off as just the code name for a research project and it ended becoming its own uh, non-profit organization. And the book is recently released and I believe I'm around 128 pages in, I should say. <laughs> That's right. We had to tap some of your expertise, Simon. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We've got a chapter there focused on opportunity connected with situational crime prevention. And of course, you're one of the experts in that area, uh, particularly in the realm of, of church security. And so, uh, you know, it, the, the shoe was on the other foot. We were interviewing you. Uh, and yeah, you do, you do feature in the book. Well, and hopefully, you know, two pages in this book for the next one, maybe I can move to four pages, James. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. But, and so I should say to people, you know, I am known you know, nationally as being a sort of church safety practitioner. And you've been alongside me of this journey for, for many years. So, you know, there's um, various different experts or various different areas of your expertise. And you've helped me for a long time. I think it was 2016 when we did our first local conference That's here right, in, in yeah, Minnesota. So, yeah, time, time is drifting on. But. And it's funny to look back on that conference as well, because you, you downplay it by saying we just did our local conference. But I remember it actually being 
very well attended. It was a big audience and we got some media attention that day as well. And it, But it was a really, really good conference. And I think because of the success of that, we ended up doing it multiple years uh, uh, ongoing. So yeah, it's it's been cool just to see how that's developed. Yeah, and, and so much of your research is, I mean, your research is across, you know, uh, mass violence in general, but I know today's conversation, we're going to sort of try and tighten in, if we can, a little bit to sort of houses of worship, just some of the learnings from there. So your four things that you and Gillian found that every mass shooter have in common, I believe the first one is experienced childhood trauma. The second is reached identifiable crisis in their life. The third is study the actions of other mass shooters. And the fourth, they had the means to carry out their attack. So we're going to tackle this in sort of fourth part. So in this um, episode today, we're just going to focus on the experienced childhood trauma. So James, maybe do you mind sharing a bit about what, what did your research find about those mass shooters and childhood trauma? Yeah, so what we saw with this particular commonality was, and to some degree, it makes some sense, right? We know that a lot of children experience adversity in their lives. They maybe have been exposed to trauma. That doesn't necessarily mean that you go on to become a mass shooter. Um, There are lots of different trajectories and pathways that can come next. But in the case of these particular individuals, we saw a consistent theme where they had been exposed to violence at a really young age. And it had laid a foundation which they had struggled to kind of cope with through their lives. And it was always sort of there and present as they move forward. And when we talk about trauma, this was significant trauma. So in the interviews that we conducted with some of these mass shooters who were incarcerated, they wrote us letters back and forth about their childhoods. And one of the consistent themes that we noted here was this exposure to violence and horrific trauma. And we're talking sexual abuse, physical abuse, watching domestic violence in the home, being very severely bullied at school, in some cases having a parent or grandparent commit suicide, die by suicide. These were experiences that, that truly lay heavy on these individuals And I think lay a little bit of that foundation for why they were struggling so much later in their lives. And it's interesting you say as well, because, you know, within a house of worship, you know, people go to church because they're broken. You know, there's those that truly have their life together. And I think most of us, we get to a certain point in life where we realize that no one really has life together. You know, everyone's carrying some type of, of brokenness, you know. So these are people that are being welcomed into an open door environment of the church, believing that whatever your faith denomination, but the higher power, God, you know, whatever you believe in, can actually um, help you, can support you in life. And, you know, and there, is, there is a way out. But I guess when I hear you say that and talk about these youngsters, was there any signs that they'd had these things treated or were these untreated traumas and memories of childhood? I'd say a combination of both. So in some cases, uh, they had found whether it was a counselor or a therapist or some sort of intervention in their life, but it had not necessarily resonated and it hadn't been successful. Because that was the other thing. Had it been successful, we wouldn't have got the end result that we got. So in some cases, it was that they'd found some sort of treatment, but it it just wasn't working. In others, there was no intervention at all. And that was really kind of heartbreaking. It was that they'd been left to kind of deal with this problem on their own. And if the source of the problem was in the home, so if it was a parent or a family member that was being abusive, they, they didn't have any outlet in the home. They didn't have any outlet with the parent. 
They also didn't feel like they had anyone in the school system and in the wider community either. And they, they genuinely were alone. And I think it was that loneliness that starts to put them on that pathway towards violence. So that was something that really struck out to us is we need much better early intervention in this ways. And I think churches can fulfill a lot of that obligation, which is to say, you know, this is a space where you should feel comfortable talking about your life. And this is a space where we might be able to get you the support and resources that you need. And I think about Dylan Roof, the Charleston church mass murderer. And I think when he was interviewed by the FBI and been convicted, I believe it's still the same now. You know, there's a sort of the element of white supremacy. But I think he says that, you know, he's not mentally ill, that this was his sort of ideology. And I believe that's still the case. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he's still saying that. So again, if we, if we use Dylan Roof as an example, there's a denial that there's any type of mental illness or sort of trauma in there. Did you ever find in your research that some people just hadn't come to that place of acceptance as to this is why I'm having the suicidal thoughts, this is why I'm having these violent thoughts because of my childhood trauma? Uh, I guess my question is, was that coming post the murder, the attack, the, the incident, or were a lot of them finding this out before? Yeah, that's a good question because I think for some individuals, it's only after the crime, if they survive the crime, because yeah. so many mass shooters die on the scene. Uh, but if they survive the crime, it's only then that they start to get treatment in the prison system, essentially. Um, so this may come way later after the fact. Now, in some cases, there has been some sort of intervention on the front end. But what's really striking about this is you take the example of the Charleston Church shooter you just mentioned. This was somebody who was struggling in life and searching for answers. And it was his search for answers that set, let, sent him down that pathway into the darkest corners of the internet, which is how he got sort of radicalized toward uh, white supremacist extremism. So it was still this idea that I want some help, but I'm not necessarily going about it the right way or finding it in the right places. And, and so even in those really extreme cases, you can see where this foundation lies. And my clever listeners, I've got some very clever listeners, they'll see that I said the name of the attacker, uh, <laughs> whereas you didn't. And I know there's, a, there's a, a key reason why you didn't. Maybe, would you mind just sharing, James, why you chose or why you choose not to name these? Yeah, so one of the things that we've noted in our research is that there is at times a desire for fame-seeking, which is motivating some mass shooters, particularly those who felt very alienated and anonymous in their own lives, that this might be their way of not only getting revenge on society, but also sort of going out with a bang and becoming uh, notorious for, for their actions. So there is a movement called No Notoriety, which um, promotes this idea of not uh, speaking the uh, offender's name, instead trying to uplift the victims, the heroes, the survivors of those shootings as a way of sort of, you know, not giving them a platform or an incentive structure for the, for the particular shooting. So it's kind of like starving them of the oxygen of publicity. Yeah, no, and it's good. And a, a slap hand for me, I should do my, I should do my <laughs> best to follow suit, James. And so when we look at, you know, the experienced childhood trauma, and then we're talking about sort of later in life becoming a mass shooter, most, you know, from my time in law enforcement, most people start off with and a sort of an offending pattern, if you like. And I guess, was there anything in people's backgrounds that you saw that was tied into like an offending pattern before they went into a sort of a mass shooter? 
You know, that's a really, really good question. Yeah, in about, um, it's over half of the shooters in our database. I want to say it's a 60 odd percent have had prior interaction with, with law enforcement. Many of them have criminal records, criminal backgrounds. Um, we also saw a history in some cases of domestic violence as well, particularly for the older shooters. That was less the case in uh, school shooters and who tended to be teenagers, for instance. But older in life, uh, yeah, a history of violence, a history of domestic violence, a criminal history was present. And this, what's astonishing about this is, A, that still was not the uh, the final straw, so to speak. It wasn't the opportunity for intervention that it could and should have been. Secondly, we had situations where people who had domestic violence uh, histories were still able to purchase firearms to then perpetrate their crimes. And so this for us was also a kind of uh, an intervention moment where you think there are some things out there which would have prevented this person from being armed uh, at the time that they were. And if only we'd have joined the dots together and, and, and done the due diligence, we might have spotted that in advance. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff, this. And I know, like I said, when I said at the beginning of this, we are just fascinated with mass murder and just crime in general and stuff, aren't we? So it's um, great insight, James. Uh, no, we are. And, and I think it's funny you, you say this fascination because it's the public's fascination in some cases feeds that fame seeking that we were just talking about. And so it's not only that the public is fascinated by this, but prospective mass shooters are fascinated by this as well. And that's where they come to study others. And when we look at the style of trauma, and I'm pushing you on your research here, James, this could be going outside uh, outside what you covered, but when we look at the style of trauma that they suffered, was there any correlation to the act that they later carried out in life of the style of sort of shooting that they, they carried out? Yeah, so my colleague, Gillian, uh, uh, used to work on death row uh, doing death penalty medication cases. And she developed during that uh, time a kind of saying. She would say, the worse the crime, the worse the story. And what she meant by that was when you've got these really horrific crimes and a mass shooting clearly qualifies as that, what you find when you dig deeper is it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not that just somebody snaps one day and, and murders uh, you know, their colleagues at work. Is that there's this kind of slow build and pathway to violence. And so, in answer to your question, what we find is for the more kind of very severe uh, cases, the really high profile cases, often as you dig a little bit deeper, you start to realize that there, there was something back there that had, had not been you know, addressed and dealt with. Uh, and that was sort of uh, propelling them toward that action later on. You know, in my time in the British police, I can remember there was, you know, I'd arrest young teenagers and then later in my career you'd hear about them having children and they're doing their, their children then committing the same style of offences you know and even when I interact now with some people in the criminal justice system you know my mind says well that's a learned behaviour that's an environment behaviour so I think it is very much it is true you do sometimes see things and think that's you know, they've learned that somewhere. A lot of sexual offences are definitely that way. What we also saw with this is, is intergenerational trauma, right? So it was not just the case that the mass shooter themselves had been a victim of, you know, what are often broadly called adverse childhood experiences, right? So these were very severe examples of abuse and neglect, uh, as I mentioned, but also their parents had been victims of abuse and neglect. And in some cases, their grandparents had been at victims of abuse and neglect as well. So this was sometimes things that went back generationally, really speaking to this, uh, this issue of the, the kind of passing down through the generations. Well, James, your book, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic, 
is out for people to buy. So I'm really excited for you to join me. And um, next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the second point, which is when they've reached an identifiable crisis. So Dr. James Densley, thank you for joining me. Well, what a great start to this conversation with Dr. James Denzi from the Violence Project, sharing the four things that mass shooters have in common. I liked how he said that they are a slow build and a pathway to violence. He described his co-founder, Dr. Gillian Peterson, saying that the worse the crime, the worse the personal story, and that no one just snaps. Really interesting, fascinating research around mass shooters. So I'm glad that you joined me on this journey. But before you leave me, if you are looking for dynamic and online trainings to grow your knowledge on how to stay safe and secure your church, please head over to Worship Security Academy by clicking the link below and you can see all our online training offerings. Now that is it for now. Thank you for listening and I will see you in that next episode. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you are looking for more information and training on how to keep you and your church safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my one-to-one mentoring program, please head over to courses.kingswoodsc.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I will be back with you on the next episode. But until then, stay safe, have a blessed week. And remember, always plan, prepare and protect.